This is Creatives Incorporated, where we take a look at the process and inspiration of creators. I'll be your host. My name is Travis. I'm a commercial photographer and production sound mixer based in Pensacola, Florida. Today on the podcast, we have Derek Dunn. Beyond being the creative services assistant manager for the Pensacola Blue Wahoos uh, baseball team, he is also a very, very prolific podcaster in his own right with the Derek Diamond Experience. How many podcasts are you up to now? Episodes? I'm up to 220. 220 episodes. Alongside that, he is also a filmmaker. He has written and directed his first film, The Parker Syndrome, which just came out and is making the festival runs right now. Welcome to the show, man. No, thank you so much for having me. You know, it's it's cool seeing your uh, progression with the studio and everything because, you know, we... Seems like yesterday we were just building the sound panels and just seeing what it's become has been pretty awesome. And that's a great full circle thing for uh, anybody watching who's seen all the other episodes. A few of the people that have been on have talked about how great the set looks or there are people I have helped build panels. But now it's full circle that you are in here. I helped you build some panels, but Mm -hmm. you helped me build the very panels that they see on the walls and the backgrounds of each shot. It just seems like it was yesterday. It was what, end of last year? We Mm -hmm. spent all day building I think I lost count of how many panels we built. Yeah. We, it was a very long day, but it was very well worth it. You know, it's helped me with the sound quality of my podcast too. So yeah, we built awesome. uh, at least twelve panels for in here, and then we built a whole set for you as well. Yeah, like somewhere between was it like six, maybe for seven? You? I think we got a, yeah, it was close to twenty total that day. Yeah, it was a, it was a good day. Yeah, Working. it was. Yeah, appreciate you you doing that. I remember we uh. Uh, I got the bad wood, I went with the cheap wood, and you went with a slightly better wood, and yours turned out so much better because of that. And I was like, man, I should have done what Derek did. And at the end, it serves its purpose, so <laughs> yeah, it's it all good. Out fine. Yeah. Well, man, thank you for coming in today. And I like to start off with everybody uh, talking about where their foundation in creativity began. Like, everybody's creative as a kid. Everybody has their imagination and stuff, but a lot of times... You fall into academics or you fall into sports. And then for some of us, you fall into movies and you fall into music and you fall into no matter what you do, it's a creative pursuit. It's got to be part of what you do. Where did that start for you? So I remember as far back as a kid, you know, being introduced to to movies. I remember being at my uncle's house watching the original cut of the original Star Wars trilogy, not the special editions because this was before those came out, watching those repeatedly as a kid and just falling in love with that universe. And I can remember when I was in elementary school, you know, I would draw little comic strips on my assignments and then I would sometimes get in trouble for it. But for the most part, you know, my teachers would kind of get a kick out of it. And then I would write, you know, stories based on different universes that I liked, like Star Wars and Pokemon and other things. So as a kid between that and video games, that's kind of how I spent a lot of my time as a kid. And You know, we've had talks, so I know filmmaking was kind of always your first love. That's always something you wanted to do, and you've kind of gotten there with the Parker Syndrome, which I really want to spend kind of the second half talking about. But before we get there, you fell into podcasting. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I wanted to start my own podcast, you were one of the people I talked to a lot about it, about, you know, what your format was, why you chose to do things the way you do. And like we said, you've been very prolific, 220 episodes now. Where was the start to that? So it dates all the way back to 2013 is when I started podcasting. But before that, going back to 2005, before podcasting was even really a term, it was just, you know, webcasts or online radio shows is what they used to be called. So growing up, I was also a huge pro wrestling fan. 
And I discovered this podcast almost by accident. I can't remember the original name of it, but it had five different guys who are based out of New York, and they were all from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. You know, two guys were Italian, one was from Puerto Rico, um, two were African American, but their common knowledge was, or their common love was wrestling. And I remember listening to it to and from college and thinking, this is really cool because it wasn't like your typical radio show where you hear like a seven minute interview, if that with a celebrity, it was just guys sitting around talking about something they liked. It felt like I was in a car or I was at college kind of having that same conversation, whether it be about movies, video games, it it just felt like someone just happened to put a microphone in the room. And I fell in love with that format. And after that, I was introduced to Kevin Smith. I saw Jay and Silent Bob uh, strike back when I was in high school And then years later in college, found out he was doing his own podcast. So fell in love with those. I'm a huge Kevin Smith fanboy. Pretty much most everything he's done has been great. And through that, my friend Zach, who he and I went to high school together, we started our own podcast called The Nerd Cave Podcast, where we would talk about kind of the weekend news when it comes to pop culture and movies and things like that. And then we would do a review segment. From there, I kind of had the itch to do kind of my own solo project. And I've always been fascinated by other people's stories, mostly celebrities, but not so much what their career is. It's how it's what most all aspiring filmmakers or actors think. How did that person get to where they are? And I've always been fascinated by those stories. So that's what I made my podcast about was I would interview really anyone who I'd think would have an interesting story, whether it be a musician Um, an author, artist, and that was where the Derek Diamond experience started. Fast forward to the summer of 2018, I was close to hitting 200 episodes. And at that point, I was kind of at a crossroads with the podcast because we were in the middle of baseball season. So I'm already burning the candle at both ends because of the insane amount of work hours that we have. I was kind of falling out of love with it to be honest. And I met someone at Podcast Movement, which is a four-day podcasting conference that rotates locations every year. But they have uh, workshops, breakout sessions. It's primarily geared for people who are starting their own show. But I wanted to go to see if I could get anything more out of it. And I met this guy. uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's from Manchester, England. And he and I were just having a conversation one night. And he said, well, you know, if you're just doing your podcast as a hobby, then what you're doing is fine. But you telling me that you're not happy with it means that you care enough that you want it to succeed, you know, as far as listeners and exposure and things like that. And I said, well, yeah, if it's something I want to do, I want it to be successful. So he said, well, what do you want to do if you don't want to be a professional podcaster? And he said, I want to be a filmmaker. And instantly he said, make your podcast about filmmaking. So I thought about it and After I hit 200 episodes, I made the decision to take the rest of the year off and completely revamp the show. New music, new graphics package, and now I, it's gearing a little bit more in production in general now, but I've primarily focused on people who work in the film and television industries and not just getting their story, but also getting kind of that educational vibe from it because I'm learning from their stories as well because it's in the field that I want to work in. But I also want to make it 
something that people can listen to. Like if I want to be an actor or they want to be a cinematographer, they can listen to my podcast to possibly find out how they can do that. One of the questions I like to ask people is like, I'm a gear guy. Like I have way more equipment than I could possibly need, but that's part of my passion when I get into podcasting or film or something like that is the tools are, are kind of the toys of it for me. Other people, they're the exact opposite. Are you a gear guy or no? It's funny you ask that because my outlook on that has changed throughout the years. So when we started the Nerd Cave, I bought, because I had a MacBook Pro at the time, I bought this little USB splitter. I can't couldn't tell you the brand name or what it was technically called. And I bought three Samson Meteor mics, just simple little USB microphones, because we used to record our podcast in our old church youth room, and we would just sit you know, basically in a circle, I'd put the MacBook Pro on a table, we'd record it in GarageBand. And since then, I've, I guess the right way to say it would be I care more about what I use because my current setup, if I'm doing an in-person podcast like you and I are doing, I've got multiple uh, Shure SM58 microphones, stands very similar to the ones we're using. And I record with a Zoom H6, which i absolutely love anybody who does podcasting hmm. i would highly recommend the h6 and when i do phone interviews this is something i actually recently uh, discovered because i used to record through skype or through third-party recording software which for the most part is reliable but i have lost a couple of interviews and had to redo them due to you know crashes or file corruption and things like that i have this little ten dollar adapter called an irig one end goes into the H6 that goes into a splitter. One end of that splitter goes into my phone, and the other goes into another input on the Zoom. And you you record the phone call. And the quality, you know, I've only done one interview with it, but it's actually been really good. So uh, I, I definitely pay more attention to what I use now more than what I used to. You spent time with the Nervecade Network. Mm -hmm. So at one point, weren't you making at least three podcasts at the same time? Three shows you were releasing? Oh, at one point I was doing five shows a week. Five shows a week. Wow. Yeah. I will never do that again. Yeah. That sounds like you're asking for burnout. Yeah. Because I would do my show. I would do the Nerd Cave podcast. I would do a wrestling show. I would do a fantasy football show and a comic book show. So that was my week was doing podcasting. And honestly, I got burnout on it to the point where I didn't want to do podcasting anymore. And then, you know, I left the Nerd Cave um, around the time we hit 200 episodes. I, I don't remember the exact date of that, but I, I took it strictly to doing just my show. And I also do a show with my friend Jason Robbins called Nerd Cave Retro. We're both huge fans of old school video games. You know, he primarily grew up in the 80s. I grew up in the 90s. So we review old Nintendo and Super Nintendo games and do like this month in gaming history and things like that. And that's that's a lot of fun because video games for me as a kid were hugely important because that's how I spent a lot of my time. So getting to, in a way, relive all those memories has been great. That is a lot of fun. I have a friend who uh, I want to have on the, the podcast uh, probably next season. Uh actually programs and codes original Nintendo games for the NES. Oh, that's awesome. So from the ground up, sometimes they are ports that he's created, so they were never made for it that he'll port over and usually have to code from the ground up to match. Um, 
sometimes it's sequels or something that was never released. Sometimes it's an improvement on a game, but a lot of times it's original material yeah. that he's just a game he's created. And uh, there is a very voracious, you know, community out there that people that will pay very good money for those games. Because, um, you know, you think about it, if you're like a huge hardcore original Nintendo fan, like to have a new game come out, like one that hasn't been released, you know, that's something that you just don't expect to happen. Well, especially now that you have social media and you have crowdfunding campaigns like Kickstarter and mm -hmm. Indiegogo, people will create their own games in that same style of NES or Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, that, that era of gaming. And I've even seen some where they will actually make them on a physical cartridge mm -hmm. for those consoles, which to me is That's just yeah. mind-blowing because I'm thinking, I haven't seen a cartridge of this since like 1995. And here's a new one coming out. It's, 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 it's really cool. He'll do it in the colored cartridges, the sleeves. It has the box with the little pamphlet instructions and the whole whole deal. That's awesome. Yeah, and they uh, he's, he's shared with, I won't share it on here, but he shared with me some of the numbers of what they can go for um, because they make a set amount of them. A, because they're expensive to make, and B, it keeps the value high. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's a pretty wondrous thing. And uh, I guess uh, it was the only console to ever use that type of game code. Mm -hmm. the NES, and nobody wants to learn it because it's very, very difficult. Um, so if there's a bug in the game, he has to hand go line by line for thousands of code. There's no there's no way to troubleshoot it you know, with any kind of interface. Yeah. It's just line code. Yeah. No, that, that's insane. And I, I give major credit to anybody who can do that. You know, you've built the Derek Diamond uh, experience on interviews like this. Mm -hmm. Now, you've done a lot of celebrity guest uh, interviews, and you got access throughout, uh, through a lot of the con scenes and stuff like that. When did that start? So, I, I've been working with Pensacon volunteering ever since year one. And year one was right before I started my own show. And right, coming to Pensacon, it was either 2015 or 2016. It may not have been 15. It's a while back, so I can't 100% remember, but I just had the idea of I can use Pensacon as a pull to get certain people on my show that may not have done it otherwise because they're promoting something that mm -hmm. they're doing. Like I'm giving them a reason to come on my show to promote something. And me being based out of Pensacola, you know, has that kind of local connection. So mm -hmm. it was simply just, you know, subscribing to IMDb Pro, I would find. Whoever, like, for example, I'll use Jim Cummings, who's a famous voice actor oh, yeah. from the 90s. Wonderful guy. Yep. Um, he was at Pensacon 2016, I believe. I found his agent's contact info on IMDb Pro and just sent them a quick email saying, you know, hey, my name is Derek Diamond. I host a podcast based out of Pensacola. I'd love to have Jim Cummings on to promote his appearance at Pensacon. The next day, I get an email that said, yeah, he'd love to do it. Wonderful. And I was... Completely blown away by that because he was one of the first, I'd call, like, known celebrity guests that I've had. And, you know, him being such a huge part of my childhood growing up in the 90s with hearing his voice on, you know, Darkwing Duck, Tailspin, a lot of the, the Disney yeah. afternoon block w was really, really cool. Yeah, he's one of those voice talents that you may not know his name, but he is the voice kind of our age. Our childhood. You know his work. Yeah. And there's there's a handful of about, you know, 10 or 15 voice actors that if you looked up their credits, you're like, oh, they were on just about every show I 
mm-hmm. I watched. And they, they played multiple roles and such. And so, yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing when you get to see that. Um, I, you know, I worked with Pensacolon, you know, for the mm-hmm. first four years as well, built up their photography side. And so, yeah, we worked so, together on the media side of things. Mm-hmm. So we got to do uh, that. Now, my interactions with the guests were for their, their portraits typically, and those took, you know, 60 seconds, usually less. Yeah. Uh, but I had the opportunity to meet them all and say hello and and uh, welcome to the, to the city and all that. And so that was great. But I, I love that you were able to use that as an end to, you know, it was something you were already doing. Mm-hmm. It's not like you volunteered so that you could benefit your podcast. You were volunteering because that's what you were passionate about. And you, you know, after they, you had worked it and they knew they could trust you and you were, you know, a valuable member of the team. You say, hey, I'm doing this. What do you think about me using this time to approach them? And that way you, I'm assuming you had a full the full backing of, I'm guessing at that time it was Manda. Uh, and very early on, it was primarily Kat once right. she once she took over. Okay, so it was it was yeah by year three. Yeah. Okay. Because 2016 was my first year doing the video side of things. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And then Kat was, you know, in charge by that yeah. point. Yeah, 14 and 15 was Manda and then Kat came over and yeah. we had Kat and that was most of our tenure was under Kat, mm-hmm. who we miss very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, I hope she's doing well out in Texas, Kat. Well, let's talk about transferring from podcasting to that conversation you talked about where you shifted your mindset in your podcast to more filming. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was probably also a kickstart to get you focused back on your dream of filmmaking being a director. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, as, in a way, I was using the podcast as a tool to learn more about what I actually wanted to do. So the story of the Parker Syndrome It's actually, I made, when I got out of college, I wanted to just make something. I didn't know what, but I had, you know, a group of friends that we used to do silly stuff. Like we would shoot our, you know, camping trips we'd go on or just silly stuff that we would do back at that time. But I wanted to write and shoot an actual movie. My idea was just to do something short, maybe two or three scenes with a couple of people. It eventually evolved into the original version of the Parker syndrome. And it went from a short two to three scene film to a 45 minute, not quite feature, but not quite a short. Yeah. You're going to bump it on the door there. Yeah. It's it's kind of a, a hybrid. And we shot a couple of more films after that. And then, you know, as friends do, they, we all get older and kind of go in our own separate ways and things like that. The, What brought me into rediscovering my love of film is through a mutual friend of ours, Steve Wise. Mm -hmm. He wrote and directed his film, Survey, Mm -hmm. and he asked me if I wanted to to help him out. So I ran audio, and I was only there for one day, but that one day that I was on set really kind of reinvigorated my love of wanting to pursue filmmaking. So then I was watching the original Parker Syndrome not too long after that, and I thought, well, if I'm if I were making this now, I would change this. I would probably do that differently. I'd probably keep that, so on and so forth. And then it just like a light bulb went off in my head. Why don't I do that? You know, I've been talking about making something for years, so why not do that? So I started writing the script. This was mid to late 2017. You know, I wrote part of it and then went away from it for a while. And then in 2018, I went through, I won't go into detail, but I went through a lot of personal changes and went mm-hmm. through went through a pretty bad depression at, at that point. And 
I decided I'm going to finish writing this script. And I asked Steve to help me out, give me, you know, critiques on how I can make it better. Went through, I think, nine or 10 rewrites. And then in December of last year, you know, it became a reality. You know, went through the whole casting process, finding great crew. And we shot it over two days. It was shot in December of 2018. And then we had our premiere for it uh, back in July, which was a whole story in and of itself because we had over 60 people show up, which shocked me. I was thinking maybe 30 max, but seeing the amount of people that were there and how happy it, it made the crew to be a part of it was, it was really humbling to me. That's really great. Yeah. And the fact that that many people wanted to show up after the fact, keep this going, they were proud of it. It meant they had good leadership and that you were a pleasure to work with and they enjoyed working that crew. Yeah, it, it was surprising to me because we had a, a smaller crew and we had um, six primary actors. Everyone just meshed together really well. And, I, and I've heard stories in the past of how, you know, when you're on set for a couple of days or even a little bit longer that you almost become family or good friends with those people because you're spending so much time together that you almost can't help but get to know them, at least to some extent. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened, you know, on the Parker syndrome. And I, I, I credit everyone, but the two people that I have to give the most credit to are Steve Wise, who was my assistant director. And I also call him a co-producer because he helped me out with the logistics of everything. And then um, Kevin Almodovar, who's, you know, such a, a wealth of information and is so good at what he does. You know, one of the things that was most shocking to me and made me the happiest was when I put out the first casting call for the Parker syndrome, he messaged me on Facebook and said, if you need a DP, I'd love to help you out. So that, that was, that was mind blowing to me. And just hearing him, you know, tell me from a visual sense, you know, how things work and, how things should look, and this is why this works this way. And not just how it works, but mm -hmm. why it works. Right. I, I learned so much from those two in those two days that, you know, was was just great. Those are two really good guys to have in your corner. I've worked with both of them and they're they're they're, they're lovely guys as friends and they're they're talented mm -hmm. in their fields. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, you went to you went to Steve for uh, Steve Wise for script writing and you know, can't mention Steve without saying, you know, he had one of the, you know, one of the scripts for Batman that was very close to being made at one point. He's a very talented script writer. Uh, and Kevin, Kevin's done so much in the past 10 years in media. He is truly a student of the art form and is very passionate about it and really willing to give back and help people out. I've worked with him on a lot of sets and he wants things done right and he wants things to be done as best they can be. And uh, he's not afraid to speak up to get that done. Uh, but I've never seen him be um, aggressive about it. Yeah, he's he's like you said. He's he has when he speaks up about something, it's typically in the realm of education. Yeah, he wants to say, hey, if we thought about doing it this way, you know, we shouldn't do it that way because it doesn't make sense for this reason. Mm -hmm. um, and he's always been a wonderful resource to have on set. Yeah, for that reason, absolutely. So good guy. And I know there's a shot in in that film that. Uh, he and Megan uh, Glesser, who's a great AC and mm -hmm. DP in her own right that we know, uh, did. You had a walk shot that was like, you know, a single the one take. Or, yeah. So the climax, and not to spoil really anything that happens in the movie, but the climax of the scene, or not of the scene of the film, takes place at what's basically a college frat party. And we had the idea, 
why not try and do the whole thing in one long shot? When the idea was brought up to me, I just kind of paused and said, what? <laughs> I, I knew of these you know, shots yeah. being done, but I had never thought to actually attempt it. Yeah. And it was the most complex scene to do, not just because of that, but it also included extras. You know, we mm. had close to 10 people. We shot the whole thing in my living room, this entire scene. It, it goes from one end of the living room to the other and involves, you know, the two actors moving from one end to the other, having conversation. And then we actually included some of the extras to come up to the table they were sitting at and interact like, one couple interacted with uh, Brittany Leese, who played the lead role of Emma. And then we had two other uh, actors come up and um, interact with Andrew, who played the role of Ethan. So just having all those beats and everything having mm -hmm. to happen at a certain time. Because when you do a one shot, there's really no room for error. Because if you nope. mess up, you have to do the whole thing over again. It's, it's a dance that has to be perfect with 20 people. Mm -hmm. So we ran through, we did rehearsals... We did six or seven rehearsals, and then I felt we were comfortable enough that we could give it a shot, and then we did seven takes of it. And when it came to shooting, rehearsing, and all of it, we did it in just over an hour. Awesome. Which was mind-blowing. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Are you happy with how it turned out in the, the finished film? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. No, it, it, it all... There are, a certain, there are certain things that I would probably change, you know, going back and looking at it, seeing the whole thing together, but... It's all experience and lessons mm -hmm. for, you know, whatever I do next. Do you think this film's always going to have a special place for you? Oh, for sure. Because it's my first one. Yeah. And I, I will always, I said this because we did an episode of my podcast that featured the cast and crew of the film. And I, I said this then, you know, I put something about it on Facebook after we did the shooting. It will always hold a special place to me because to me, it's more than just a film. It to me was my exit door of a very trying period of my life where I was not in a very good headspace and I was not the best company to be around. And writing the script and shooting it helped get me out of it. So I will always owe I will always owe the cast and crew more than they will know because they helped me not just accomplish something that I've been wanting to do since I was in college but helped me get out of a bad period of my life. That's great. I'm glad they were able to help you that way mm -hmm. and that you were able to throw yourself into something productive, something, you know, something that would kind of birth and create something that mm -hmm. would be joyous, not just for you, but for other people and use that as an escape method for, for the funk you were in and depression. And that's great. I think it's a really healthy way of doing it. Well, it's like that old saying, art can at times be therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Some people are against that, but... I think whatever it is that helps you get out of your bad mind frame, as long as it's not hurting other people, mm -hmm. I, I'm all for it. Whether that's making a film, whether it's doing a podcast, whether it's, you know, cooking, something like that. If it's something that helps get you out of your funk, that's what you got to do. Yep. You know, there's uh, my friend who was just on the, the podcast, uh, know someone who was a powerlifter and that powerlifter was talking about the when he approaches the bar and he's lifting you know 600 pounds it's all anger it's rage he lifts with rage and he thinks of every horrible thing that's ever happened in his life and he puts that on the bar and in my mind i initially think like that doesn't seem healthy like you have to use like rage and anger to like drive yourself but when i actually shut up and i listened to him in the, on the podcast 
he talked about it like when he does that, he takes all of that internalized like bad and he 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 puts it on the bar and then by lifting that is like his way of kind of overcoming it. Getting it out of his and system. He gets it out. That's yeah. how he gets it out. He puts it on there and then he uses that rage to like kind of burn it clean when he lifts. And then when he puts that when he drops that weight, those problems are dropped. And I was like, okay, that's kind of that's not the way I think I'm wired, but I can see how that would help someone. It's symbolic in a way when you're yeah. dropping the weights, you're dropping, you know, all those negative feelings. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if if there's anything happening in your life that you can't get your your head outside of, <laughs> doing something like writing, directing a film, it's going to put so many decisions on your plate. You're not going to be able to think about anything else. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that explains why. No, that's one way of looking at it. You you can't. You can't think about the negativity because you're so focused on doing, you know, whether it's filmmaking or, you know, for me, it's both that and podcasting, yeah. you know, because you, you have to be in that moment. And that's something that I've, that's a lesson that I've learned in life as I've gotten older, because I've always, I've always had these anxieties about a lot of things, especially when it comes to social aspects. And that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast was to force myself out of it. When you live in the moment, you can't worry about that kind of stuff because if you're present in writing a script, if you're present in you know, this conversation like you and I are having, you can't focus on anything else. And then half the time, I'm like, why was I mad in the first place? So now that you've completed the film, you've got it out there, you've got it into festivals, and I know you've won a couple of awards. Can you tell us about what you've won and kind of where it is now? So an, an ironic twist, and I promise that there's no bias with this whole thing. And I, I say that in kind of a joking way as something that Steve and I have going. So I discovered this film. I use Film Freeway per recommendation of Steve and other filmmakers. It makes things very easy for you to submit you know, your film to various festivals because you basically upload a link to the film in any promo material you have, like behind-the-scenes photos, trailers, um, descriptions, actors, really anything you can think of. It's almost like an IMDB in mm-hmm. a way that you're creating for your film. And you find various festivals. Some are very genre-specific. Some are you know, more of a broad range. And the Parker Syndrome is a drama, so I haven't been able to submit to really a lot of niche festivals. I haven't really found one that's in a, a drama sense. I'm sure they're out there, but I just haven't discovered it yet. I found this one. It was one Steve actually sent to me, and he said, you should submit it. And it's called the Diamond Film Awards, based out of Italy. And I just made the joke, well, it's my name, so they have to accept me, right? And I, I take the approach of, I don't know if it's going to get accepted unless I actually do it. So I submitted for um, Best Narrative Short, because with them, short films are less than 10 minutes, and the mm-hmm. Parker Syndrome is just under 15. But then they have Best Narrative Short. So I submitted to that. And then best uh, first time director, and we won both for the month of August. That's awesome. Which was again a testament to the cast and crew. You know, we were almost like the. We, I can't speak speak for anyone else, but for me, I was the least experienced person, or one of the least experienced people on set, and I was directing the mm-hmm. thing because I'd only been on set really one other time. Well, I take that back twice because I had been on the um, one of the Pensacon commercials I helped, you know, PA for that. Mm. So getting those was a a huge honor because, you know, again, it goes to the hard work of everyone that was involved. Because I I tell people film, 
yeah, it says that I wrote and directed it, but there's much more that goes into it than that because I think every job, whether it's a film set, set for TV, you know, because I'm sure you can speak for the same thing. Every crew job is important from the director mm-hmm. all the way down to the PA. Oh, yeah. It's all one big machine and we're all little cogs in it. And when one doesn't work, the whole thing has the chance of shutting down. So I, I thought it was awesome that, you know, they accepted us for both and it, it was a, it was a huge honor. And then a, a lot of the festivals I'm waiting on, um, I won't know until October, November, some even, you know, early 2020, but I know we, we won at the diamond film awards. It was accepted into, um, indie short fest for the month of August as well. And then we got an honorable mention from Central Florida Cinefest, which is right outside of Orlando. And I'm awaiting ones from Tampa, Jacksonville, um, the Atlanta, Georgia area, Atlanta itself, and then cities outside of it. And those I'll find out, you know, later on in the year. But it's it's almost become like an addictive process because when you get your first one, it's just like filmmaking in general. When you do your first you don't want to do anything else. You want to keep doing more. So it's when I got the first Laurel, I'm wanting to submit more. And it, it's become a, a cool process. And it's something that I do plan on featuring on my podcast at some point is doing a kind of a roundtable discussion on the right way to submit your film to festivals and what to expect from the whole process. I think people would really like that. And congratulations on those awards. Oh, thank you. No, it, it was a, it was a huge surprise and a, and a huge honor. What are you going to do next? I've got a couple of ideas. It's funny because when we were at the premiere for the the Parker Syndrome, we did a quick Q&A afterwards. And one of the first questions that was asked was, is there going to be a sequel? And it might be something that I do down the line. But I know that with the Parker Syndrome, it was very much a reflection on my mindset at the time. So it was not an extremely dark story, but it was... It had a lot of overlaying themes to it with family issues and relationship issues and things like that. I'm not really in that mindset anymore, so I want to try my hand at doing something that's a little more lighthearted. I've got an idea for almost like an office slash Parks and Rec type of sitcom pilot that I think could be really funny. I've got an idea for a drama slash comedy that would actually involve the process of filmmaking. Those are the two big ideas that I have right now. Um, but, you know, as we're recording this, my immediate focus is, you know, getting the podcast back on track because something that I didn't touch on was I've changed the format to be seasonal, you know, much like you do with mm-hmm. yours. Because my work schedule with the Blue Wahoos is so wacky and unpredictable during baseball season, it's just really tough to not just get interviews, but to put all my effort into it. So I made the decision that while baseball is going on, I'm not going to do my show. And now that baseball is over for the season, I can start back. And, you know, I've got a couple of great interviews in the can that I can't wait for people to hear. I've got plenty of others in the works. And I know I want to focus a little bit more on local personalities like yourself, groups like Vivid Bridge Mm -hmm. Studios and Calliope Films and even the Emerald Coast Filmmaker Group. You know, I'd love to use my podcast as a platform for them to carry their story and their message and tell everyone what they do and kind of get a behind the scenes look of how they are. Because a lot of people know, you know, we'll use Vivid Bridge as an example. They know Vivid Bridge, the company, but I'd like to, for people to get to know Vivid Bridge, the people. Mm-hmm. And there's some good people there. Mm-hmm. When I tell people that 
if you show that you're willing to help others, others will be willing to help you. So if you, if for example, when I worked on survey, I think it showed, it, I don't want to say that this is a for sure thing, but mm-hmm. I, I like to think that it showed guys like Kevin and others that, hey, he's willing to help out other people. Mm-hmm. So I'll help him out with his project. So, you know, step in, you know, even if you're on set just as a PA, mm-hmm. you can sit back and, you know, watch someone like Kevin or like Steve do what they do. Because you can learn a lot by watching, and that's how I tend to learn things. Now that we've talked about podcasting, we've talked about film, the one thing we haven't talked about that we mentioned at the start of the show was that you were the assistant manager of creative services at it's called Blue Wahoos, mm-hmm. which is a minor league professional baseball team. Um, for those that don't know it, they've, uh, they've done pretty well. They just uh, reached the playoffs this year, and uh, they've ranked how many times the best stadium in the... We won what's called the Bob Friedis Award back in 2015, which is, you know, almost like an organization of the year type award in all of minor league baseball. That includes various levels because there's five different levels of minor league baseball. There's rookie ball, there's low A, high A, double A, and triple A. And we've been recognized, you know, a lot of especially for our community service awards. We've won community service award of the year, um, I think three years in a row uh, when it comes to the Southern League. Um, But as far as my start with the Blue Wahoos, it was something that almost happened by accident because, you know, I grew up watching baseball. You know, my parents, my whole family and I would go to watch Atlanta Braves games back when I was a kid, back when Turner Field first opened. And I knew of the Blue Wahoos from their first season back in 2012. And I I remember going to a game as a fan. It was one of their last games of the year. But I remember you're thinking, oh, this is a really cool place. You know, it was, you know, cool to just, you know, sit down and, you know, have a hot dog and a beer and watch watch a professional baseball team, you know, a short drive away from where I live. Fast forward to early 2013 and my um one of my good friends, his wife had messaged me saying, Hey, the blue Wahoos are looking for you know, production positions. You know, you should apply. So I did got the job and I worked that summer as a camera operator, basically just, you know, standing in a dugout pit or using our wireless camera to shoot the game. Well, early into that season, my boss at the time left to pursue other ventures. So then his trainee, Adam took over and he knew I had my own gear from, you know, doing my freelance jobs, doing weddings when I got out of college. So he asked if I would be willing to help him out shooting sponsor commercials and editing them and things like that because he didn't really have anyone to help him. So did that and then in 2014 and 15 got hired as his trainee. And then in 2016 offered me the position of assistant manager. And the cool thing is that my position was created. There wasn't an assistant manager. There were just trainees at the time. But because I had put in all the extra time and the effort coming in on days that I wasn't supposed to and you know, helping create content that just needed to be done, because I was taught at a very, very early age that you know, if you have the ability to help someone, then you should. Adam basically... I won't say finagled, but he modified his budget to fit a second full-time person, which was me. 
So my position was created because of all the work I had put in. And then I've you know, been doing that ever since. So it was something that intended to just be a summer job has turned into an actual career, which is mind-blowing. It sounds like you and Adam ended up kind of becoming like this dynamic duo. And it's funny because we're best friends now. You know, I was in his wedding just close to six months after us meeting. So I guess I made some type of an impact. <laughs> and now, you know, since then I've, you know, become good friends with really his entire family. They're like extended family yeah. to me. I don't even, I'm not saying they're not friends, but I call them more extended family because that's how I feel about them. Okay. And since then I've met, you know, other friends of his and we have our, you know, cool inner circle that, you know, we spend a lot of time together and everything. So no, it's, it's, it's been great. That's awesome, man. Glad to hear it. Yeah. And, and through doing stuff with the blue Wahoos has helped me from a technical side, which then folds over into my outside ventures because I, I knew next to nothing about Photoshop before I started working with the blue Wahoos. Like I took computer graphics classes in college, but I learned so much more through the Blue Wahoos with Photoshop and After Effects, really the whole Adobe suite by working there. And through that, I was able to you know, create the poster for the Parker Syndrome, graphics for my podcast, editing the Parker Syndrome itself. You know, a lot of those skills I improved on and even learned through my time with the Blue Wahoos. That's great, man. I love, I love hearing stuff like that, that people's jobs become something that feed their passions. Mm-hmm. What is a tip that you would give someone, especially now as a first-time director or as a podcaster? I mean, we could do a series of tips with you with all the stuff you've done. So let's let's do a couple of things. Let's say if someone is a podcaster or wants to start a podcast, what would you tell them? Because I'm, you know, you're episode nine, buddy. I got hopefully a lot more episodes in me. How do I get from nine to two twenty? Well, if you work in any creative field, you have to be a little bit insane because I've put a lot of hours in all the different things that I've done. When it comes to podcasting, if you're starting out for the first time, having the idea is half the battle because I have met so many people who say, oh, I would love to do a podcast. And I say, well, what would it be about? I don't know. Like that's the concept of what you do is your foundation the technical stuff comes in later, and I'm not saying it's not important because clearly it is, but you have to know what your show is going to be. You have to have that clear vision of this is how I want it to be. And that's the great thing about podcasting is it can be whatever you want. It can be, you know, like your show, interviewing various creative types in the community. With me, it's, you know, film and television makers. I've seen podcasts on iTunes that are about knitting. And it's crazy to think about, but it had quite a few episodes. And if you're that passionate about something, then all you need is really a microphone and a laptop. And I, for first time starters, start within your means. You know, I started with a laptop and a USB microphone. And then from there, start saving up and you can gradually move into, you know, a more sophisticated setup would, would be my advice. I think that's a great piece of advice. And I know someone starting a podcast and people look at what I'm doing here. It looks like I probably haven't lived up to that, but um, I actually had all of this equipment before I started the podcast. That was one of the reasons I knew I was going to go straight for a three camera video podcast was I, because of my actual work Mm -hmm. and what I do, I have a lot of equipment 
and I also have a studio space. And so there was no reason, there was no bar holding me back from creating a three-camera podcast with professional audio and lighting and sending it out there. I had nothing to hold me back. Yeah. I just had to get it to that 80% where I could sign off on it and be okay and not try and nitpick it to death and get it out the door. Um, so yeah, I agree with you just with whatever you have. Now on the filmmaking side, what tip would you give? Well, it depends on what you want to do. If you want to be a director or a writer, if you want to be a writer, then the easy answer is write. When you have an idea, format it, you know, write anything down because if you don't, chances are, if you're like me, you'll forget it. I can't tell you how many ideas I've come up with that I think, oh, I wish I would have wrote that down because I can't remember it. So just actually writing the story is the first thing. Getting that first draft done. You'll make changes to it. You may toss nine-tenths of what you write out the out the door. But getting that first draft done is the important thing. The other thing is surround yourself with people who can help you. If you're inexperienced, find someone who is experienced in what you want to do. Pick their brain, ask questions, almost take them on in like a mentor role. You know, because I, I call I call Steve my mentor with a lot of things when it comes to filmmaking from you know, directing, because I can remember the week of shooting the Parker syndrome, he and I went over set etiquette because that's just something that I didn't know about. And a lot of it you're not going to know until you actually do it. And I remember having just such high anxiety when we were about to shoot that first scene for the movie. But once you start, it all just kind of slow down. It slows down for you. And I, I say that same with the, the Blue Wahoos, you know, because Working a baseball game can seem like really high anxiety, but the more you do it, the more the whole process slows down for you, and then you can practically do it in your sleep. Now, your time at the Wahoos, you guys, I mean, it's a its a great place to be, and it's won, the, the organization and the park have won a couple of awards, right? Yeah, so we've won, uh, when it comes to the Southern League, we've won um, quite a few different awards from community service um, I think the last two years in a row, we've won the Woman of Excellence. We actually have, it's almost a 50-50 split between male and female workers uh, with the Blue Wahoos because you, know, you think of sports as being, you know, that male-dominated industry, but that's really been changing, you know, over the last several years. Our head of finance is female. The head of our operations is a female. So uh, that that was a really cool award, and we've won uh, Organization of the Year uh, twice uh, executive of the year, groundskeeper of the year, multiple times. So um, it, it's cool seeing, you know, because baseball season is such a grind, and then seeing whether it's an individual or uh, a staff as a whole get recognized for their hard work and their drive throughout the season is is really remarkable. So thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find you? So as far as the podcast goes, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at D Diamond Podcast. With the Parker Syndrome, it's on uh, Facebook and Instagram at the Parker Syndrome. Uh, with the podcast, The Derek Diamond Experience, uh, the season premiere as we're recording this uh, will be on Thursday, September 5th. New episodes drop every Thursday on iTunes and Spotify. And the Parker Syndrome, as I said, is currently making its festival run. Um, the trailer is available to watch on the Facebook page. Uh, so you can check that out. Uh, any news you can find with 
awards, festival recognition will all be primarily under the Facebook and Instagram page at the Parker Syndrome. Awesome, dude. Again, thanks for coming in. No, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find more at creativesincorporated.com.